Now we start a new course of study tonight. Uh, it's called the Pastoral Epistles. On the top of your notes, that word epistles means letters. There are three books in the Old Testament that we call the Pastoral Epistles. They are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Timothy and Titus were pastors. And uh, at the end of the book of Second Timothy, it says, Unto Timothy, the first bishop of the church at Ephesus. And at the end of the book of Titus, it says, Unto Titus, the first bishop of the church at Crete. So they, we call these uh, pastoral epistles because bishops, pastors, those words are, are basically synonymous. They mean overseers. Overseers. And uh, let us remember before we get started that God is the one that gives us pastors. They're not perfect. We understand that. No pastor is perfect. Everyone is different. But in Jeremiah 3 and verse 15, the Bible says that the Lord will give us pastors according to His heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And as I mentioned before, God has a heart. He gives us many things from His heart, including pastors. They're not perfect, but they are from God. They are a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says, And He gave some apostles, prophets, some pastors and teachers, evangelists. He gave them. They're, they're gifts from God. Uh, we got special meetings at old time with some pastors and evangelists coming up here uh, in, in a few weeks. I like going to those. God speaks to me uh, through those preachers and evangelists. Tim Green is a wonderful man of God. So we are going to begin going through one chapter a week on Wednesday. First Timothy one this week, two next week, three. There's six chapters in First Timothy, four chapters in Second Timothy, three chapters in uh, Titus. That's a total of thirteen, and I think they'll be uninterrupted, and they'll bring us right about to the brink of us making the transition to a new pastor here at the church. And so it would be good for us all to know this, to review this. There's a lot of things in these pastoral epistles for everyone. uh, But there's also a lot of instructions for pastors. We have three pastors here tonight. we got Pastor Barron here tonight, Pastor Garland, Pastor Dye is with us. we got others of you that God is going to call uh, because we're praying to that end. And uh, God calls men sometimes in their, what we're going to see today, in their youth. And uh, sometimes in their uh, uh, middle ages uh, to be pastors. I've seen some of them that do that very uh, faithfully, uh, who, who sometimes after retirement end up becoming a minister uh, of the Word of God. So, by the way, where's that birthday card? Is it dead or is it still going around? Anyone have it? Okay, let's keep that moving. Uh, There's a guy named Andy who's 90 years old. There was an article in the Penny Saver to send him notes. We don't know him, but we're going to send him a note. So make sure that gets around you all sign it. All right. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to try to go through this, and uh, you should have 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 20 in front of you. And... uh, there's a lot in these. Some of it's rudimentary. You've got to keep in mind, Timothy was a pastor with nobody to really reflect back on. 
we're here in 2023, we've got centuries of pastors and their writings and their experiences to reflect back upon, whereas Timothy didn't. And so Paul says some pretty rudimentary things uh, to him, but, but local pastors were something brand new to the world. And so this, this book is written by Paul uh, to Timothy, as we will see. So we need to get at it because there's a lot here, but I hope it will feed your soul well tonight. And from time to time, I'm going to make personal references over here to Pastor Barron uh, for, for things that I think need to be emphasized. But let's start, okay? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. No choice in the matter. You see that? No choice. Apostle, that means missionary. Missionary. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. There's no choice. The gifts, the gift and the callings of God are without repentance. Uh, I just was re- I'm, re- I'm reading through Exodus right now in my devotions, and there's Moses. He's making every excuse he can to get out of it. God says, nope. You're going to go. I'll give you some help, but you're going to go and you're going to do what I ask you to do. And uh, if God calls you, please don't try to get out of it. Boy, your life is going to become... God will get your attention. Uh, but God gifts people and calls people and He never repents. He never changes His mind about the gifts and the callings of, uh, of, of God. Now, that's the introduction. Gets right to it. Verse 2, unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ our Lord. Unto Timothy, notice he says, my own son in the faith. Now, that could mean two different things. It could mean that he literally led him to Christ, and he was one of his converts, Or it could mean he became an adopted son whom he mentored, who became, you know, like the proverb says that, you know, he that treats his servant well shall become his son at the end. And uh, it could mean that because um, when we are first introduced to Timothy in Acts 16.1, it says this, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed. But his father was a Greek. Now maybe that was when he was converted, but I don't think so because the next verse says, which was well reported of by the brethren which were at Lystra and Iconium. So he was already well reported of by the brethren when Paul crossed paths with him. So... I don't personally think he led him to Christ. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think or anything. But he became like a son to Paul uh, in the ministry. And we know that uh, from the next book in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, he had a mother who was a Jew. She married a Greek, came from a mixed family. He's living in Asia, which is Lystra and Iconium. And uh, But it tells us this in, insight into his uh, childhood. 
in Second uh, Timothy 1 and verse 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. And then in this book, when we get to chapter 3 in a few weeks, we will read this um, about uh, Timothy's upbringing, chapter 3, verse 15. But if I tarry long, I'm sorry, must be 2 Timothy 3, 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So whatever scriptures they had back then, which we didn't, didn't have the New Testament, but whatever scriptures he had, those scriptures were able to make him wise unto salvation and I believe were shared to him by his grandma Eunice and his uh, mother Lois there. And uh, they, they taught him and so the seed was planted. Somewhere along the line it was watered. Sometime God gave the increase. Next thing we know, this guy is found, discovered in Lystra and the Iconium area, which are just a couple cities just a few miles apart. Paul crosses paths with him and takes him unto him and he becomes a missionary aide and has tremendous experiences with, with Paul. So understand that the background of the book unto Timothy, my own son in the faith. Now notice these next three words, grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a great observation on the back under chapter 1 and verse 2 if you want to flip your notes open over he says notice the apostles triple salutation grace, mercy and peace whenever Paul writes to a church he wishes grace and peace but to a minister he wishes grace, mercy and peace ah we need mercy more than the average Christian we have great, greater responsibilities and consequently might more readily fall into greater sin. So to a minister, Paul's salutation is grace, mercy, and peace. That is interesting because every single, he wrote a bunch of books. Uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And all of them, he ended with, or he started with grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. But first, second, Timothy and Titus, grace, mercy, and uh, peace. And uh, so pastors need a lot of mercy because oftentimes, especially from God, because oftentimes they are not forgiven. They are not forgiven by man. Uh, Lester Roloff helped me out a lot before I was when I was a farmer. Back in 1980, I heard Lester Roloff make this statement, and for some reason it stuck with me, and I'm glad for things people said that stuck with me, that helped me later in life so much as a pastor. And when he, he said something that just kind of boggled my mind, like, you're kidding, right? But I, I have come to understand the truth of it. He made this statement, I never forget it. He says, the preacher must be the first to forgive but is the last to be forgiven. And uh, there are some people that if a pastor offends them, hurts their feelings, betrays their trust, whatever it might be, they are not going to forgive them, the pastor, till they take their last breath. They're not going to. And uh, boy, 
Could I cite some examples tonight, but we got to go on and have Bible study uh, about uh, something maybe said in the sermon that was misconstrued or, 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 or whatever, and no forgiveness for the pastor. None whatsoever. But he has to be the first to forgive, or his ministry is going to go nowhere. That helped me, Pastor Barron. That helped me. That might be worth writing down. Uh, the pastor, the preacher, must be the first to forgive, but the last to be forgiven. That has helped me many times. To say, hey, I'm not the first one going through this. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you all, I don't think any of you have a problem with it, but remember, pastors are human. Okay, they're human beings. They have good days, they have bad days. And uh, they say things they regret, they said do things, and, and so on. You just got to forgive. You just got to forgive. You got to forgive them too. As I besought thee still to abide at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mayest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Verse 3. Now, Ephesus is in Asia. Macedonia is in Europe. So during their travels, as Paul is mentoring Timothy, there comes to a place where they went different directions, and he leaves him in Asia, in Ephesus, which is, I think it's about, not maybe 100 miles from his hometowns of Iconium and Lystra. Um, so he didn't, Timothy did not end up far from his home, but... Uh, Paul had to go back into Macedonia, but he communicated with him in writing. <clears throat> and this is what he said, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Churches have been planted. There are many young pastors around now. And uh, Timothy, there in Ephesus, and as we read later, he becomes the first bishop of the church at Ephesus. And what a great church that was. You can read its history later, long after Timothy died, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And he begins to list ten amazing things about the church at Ephesus. But they had one big huge fault by then. They had left their first love. But that was an amazing church, and I think Timothy ended up becoming an amazing pastor and uh, that we would later get that history of Ephesus, the church there, from Jesus in Revelation 2. But that they teach some no other doctrine. Now there are areas in the Bible of personal liberty. We know that is true, and there are preferences, and sometimes one church may emphasize a particular preference compared to another church, but not doctrine. Not doctrine. Teach no other doctrine. There is such a thing as sound doctrine. Uh, you'll see that down in verse 10, sound doctrine. In fact, as you go through the pastoral epistles, you're going to find the word doctrine is found 16 times. 16 times it is emphasized to the pastor over and over and over and over again that he teaches doctrine. Sound doctrine. Now, folks, there's some doctrine that's just, it's inflexible. Um, Jesus is Lord. 
Salvation by grace through faith. The reality of heaven and hell and, and uh, the inspiration and preservation of the scriptures. Some things we, we can be absolutely inflexible on. We can't change. Can't change for anybody. There's other things we can have preference about. Personal liberty. You know, hast thou faith? Have it unto thyself. Blessed is that man that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And so this is something you have to understand about pastors is that they're going to have sound doctrine that can't be changed, but also they're going to bring into a particular church their particular preferences, uh, whatever uh, that may be. And uh, um, you've got to understand the difference. One of the things I try to do is write out all my doctrine, and I wrote it out in booklet forms. They're down here. There's a bunch from 14. I don't know what it is. But there's, there's stuff we can be inflexible on. Charge them. Charge them. Verse 3, Timothy, that they might as, that some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, when you get away from sound doctrine, then you get into this. Verse 4, neither give heed to fables. And endless genealogies. You can imagine the temptation that would be in that day to believe fables because they didn't have the New Testament. And there was all kinds of fables going on around about God and, and so on. And, uh, and, and they would repeat these fables in the church of Jesus Christ and endless genealogies. And as a result, those fables and endless genealogies not being sound doctrine would minister questions, verse 4. Questions. Now, some questions are good. But other questions are not good because they don't edify. They don't build up somebody. They actually tear people down in sowing doubts in their minds about questions. Verse 4, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So teach sound doctrine. And as a result, it will, in a godly way, edify. It is build up those that are listening uh, to the Word of God. Um, sometimes, if, if you're not careful as a pastor, as a preacher, you might want to try to discover something nobody else has ever discovered. Hey, guess what? God showed me something nobody's ever shown until 20... He's never shown anybody until 2023. No, it's not going to happen. All right, uh, I'm ama- I, I read Spurgeon every day, and I'm so amazed at, 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 at truths I thought I discovered, and he's got them written down there in his notes, the same outlines I've had, and uh, it's humbling, which is good. We need to be humble. But uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and so these people would get involved in all these fables and endless genealogies, which would minister questions in the church rather than doctrine which builds up uh, the church. And love edifies. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Charity edifieth. And that's what the next verse says. Now the end of the commandment is charity. Out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Now the ministry must be one of charity. Now the end of the commandment is charity. Paul tells the young preacher here, the end of the commandment, if, you, if you're really following God's word, if you're following the, 
the commandments of God, the end of that is charity. You don't go any farther, in other words, than charity. But notice three attributes, I should say three necessities for the preacher that have to be combined with his charity. Verse 5, number one, a pure heart. Number two, a good conscience. And number three, a faith unfeigned. Uh, These are three necessities. He's got to have charity above everything. But he also needs to have a pure heart. The preacher, the pastor, needs to have a pure heart. Boy, that's that's a... (laughs) That's a challenge in this day and age. Have a pure heart. And he's got to have a good conscience. What's a good conscience? It's one that's, that's bothered by the smallest things. If you're bothered by the smallest things, if you're convicted over the smallest things, that is a healthy sign in you spiritually. But when you or I get used to stuff, our, our, there's something wrong with our conscience. We need to have a good conscience. Then we need to have faith unfeigned, absolutely pure faith that there is nothing too hard for the Lord and we trust Him going ahead. Now some have swerved from these things, verse 6, and have turned aside to vain jangling. Now the word vain means empty. Jangling means random talk or babbling. Um... You know, I'm not going to give any examples here, but I hear a lot of preaching today that says absolutely nothing. I'm sorry, but I do. Uh, I take preaching seriously. But I hear some that says absolutely nothing. From the beginning to the end, you're just scratching your head like, what was that? It's almost, sometimes it's like a show. Or it's like entertainment. It's not edifying. It's not building up people. That's what the word jangling means. It's just a lot of talk. And uh, this person is described in verse 6 as having swerved. Swerved. He's not, you know, bringing out the sound doctrine. But he has swerved into this random talk and empty messages. And a lot of this self-help nonsense we hear nowadays. Desiring to be teachers of the law. And so he's over here in Asia and working in Europe, and there's probably a lot less Jews over there. But they, they all of a sudden want to pretend like they're experts at the law, uh, like lawyers, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they confirm, affirm. And if anybody could be a good judge of that, that would be Paul, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Uh, who, who knew the law inside and outside, and he'd be listening to these young guys and saying, they, don't, they have no idea what they're talking about. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but you don't see Pastor Cole preaching much out of the law uh, because there's a whole lot of it. I'm like, what does that mean? Now, I plow through it. I read it, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm trying to figure out all these sacrifices, wave offerings, heave offerings. And I'm just not Jewish. I didn't grow up in Israel. They, they would know exactly what it means. And if I started trying to speak to a crowd like that, they would say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He swerved aside after vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. And so they were trying to teach the law in the wrong way as, as, as what they had to live up to to, to justify themselves. 
Now look at uh, Spurgeon's notes, verses 5 through 7 on the back. <coughs> Some put the law of God into the, its wrong place. They made it a way of salvation, which it never was meant to be, and never can be. It is a way of conviction, the opposite. It makes us guilty, doesn't save us. It is an instrument of humbling. It shows us the evil of sin, but never takes sin away. That's the purpose of the law, is to make you and I guilty, not, not to follow the law. But if you go out and talk to people to this day, and you, you say to them, what do you have to do to go to heaven? They'll say, well, you've got to be good and you've got to keep the law. No, no, no. Nobody's ever kept the law. And so they misuse it. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Now, all right, so he's telling Timothy, now, Timothy, we can't ignore the law. The law is good, but we need to use it lawfully. And what is that to do? Well, look at the next two verses. This is the purpose of the law. Now, what is the law? We're talking about Moses. We're talking about basically the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what we call the law, the Pentateuch. What is that for? Okay, this is what it's for. Knowing that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. We're going to see as these pastoral epistles develop that doctrine not only means beliefs, but it means behavior. Verses 9 and 10 was all about behavior. And if a person's behavior does not line up with the Scripture's uh, that is a violation of sound doctrine. Doctrine is both beliefs and behavior. Now that's, I'm going to say something extremely general here. Extremely general. But that's mostly the difference between an evangelical and a fundamentalist. Evangelicals very, very generally get their beliefs from the Bible, but often their behavior from the world. Sometimes you look at the way they act, they dress, the music they have, but the fundamentalist says, I believe doctrine is our beliefs and our behavior should come from the pages of the Holy Scriptures. And so we look at it oftentimes in that sense as a, in a literal way. And thus we often have higher or harder standards to live by. It's not easy uh, to be a Christian when your beliefs and your behavior uh, needs to be guided by the Word of God. So there's a whole bunch of real bad people there that are condemned by the law. But we do use the law lawfully, verse 8. We expose man's sin, verse 9 and 10, so we can get to the gospel in verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. <coughs> now there's good soul winning right there is we need to use the law in soul winning 
to condemn people, to get them lost. I try to explain that to, to the church sometimes, that you've you got to get them lost before you can get them saved. And the way we do that is by using the law. You can use the Ten Commandments or other illustrations that will help them realize, wow, I have violated God's law. I am condemned. I am guilty. Romans 3.19 That every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. That's what the law is for. That's what the law is for. And so we can use the Ten Commandments. And by the way, uh, our country was a much more law-abiding country when we used to post the Ten Commandments everywhere. Because the power of the Word of God restrains behavior. Even the lost people. Even the lost people. And, uh, I mean, if we had children in every school uh, reading, Thou shalt not kill, they might be as lost as the devil... But if they become tempted to kill somebody, the Holy Spirit can flash a scripture in their mind that will restrain their behavior. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, and, and thou shalt not steal. We wouldn't have all this looting and, and uh, busting up people's property and stealing things. And if, if we still were sowing the seed of the Word of God in people's lives, it would restrain them and it would convict them, and it would bring about more conversions to Christ if people realize, man, I am lost. I have violated the law of God. So the law of God should bring us to the gospel of the blessed God in verse 11. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me that he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now the ministry is not something you sign up for. Uh, you don't go to Bible college because your mommy thought it was a good idea or your daddy thought it was a good idea. Okay, It's something that God calls people. And when He's looking for people that He can call to the ministry, He first of all counts them faithful. And, and I want to encourage you just to be faithful. Uh, you young men, um, you young men that are being faithful, you're, you might be thinking right now, well, God will never call you me, but He's watching you. And if you are faithful, if you are faithful, uh, that's what he's looking for. It says, God counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. God's not going to take someone who's unfaithful and say, I think I'll put you in the ministry. You know, an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Uh, but, but sometimes you just do what you can in church. Clean up the trash, clean up the parking lot, assist teaching children. Work on a bus route, you know, go soul winning, pass out some tracks, go to prayer meeting, go to church all the time the doors are open, and God will just, you won't even know God's watching you. But He'll find you as being faithful, and He calls them. But don't worry about it. You say, man, I, I, I don't think I can do it. Notice verse 12, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, who hath enabled me. Who hath enabled me. Nobody in the ministry feels qualified. And probably most honest people, when God calls them, think, man, God made a mistake when He called me. I hear He doesn't make mistakes, but I think He just made one. That's how I felt. Sometimes I still feel like that. Boy, God made His first mistake when He called me. 
But He can enable us. It's, a, it's amazing what God can enable you to do that you don't think you can do tonight. God can enable you. Paul said, God enabled me. God to be faithful. Put me in the ministry. And uh, so that's, that's the progression. That's how it happens. Saved and enabled by Christ because God is looking for faithful men. God is looking for faithful men. Oh, this is hard to believe, but verse 13, we've got to keep moving along here. Who was before a blasphemer? I used to struggle with that. I said, wait a minute, this guy was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He would never blaspheme the name of God. He knew the law. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. But then I realized after study, blasphemy means a whole lot more than that. Blasphemy means to injure anything that is holy, whether it's by our words or our behavior. I mean, if you see me walking down the, uh, the road with a beer in my hand, I'm drinking a beer, and they say, that's Pastor Cole out there drinking a beer. You know what I have done? I have injured the testimony of Jesus Christ. I have injured the church of Jesus Christ, a holy thing. And that testimony is blasphemy. It has injured. That's what the word blasphemy means. To injure God or to injure holy things. If we're not good testimonies, we could injure the Faith Bible Baptist Church. If I go down the road and i got heavy metal music pumping out of my... And I'm driving down the road and they say, that's Pastor Cole. My behavior, I didn't say a word. But my behavior injured the testimony of Christ. If we're walking around in the summertime half naked with no clothes on, they say, boy, I thought she was a Christian. I thought he was a Christian. And that injures the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's blasphemy. We're going to see that more times in the pastoral epistles as we go along here. And so I struggle with this saying, why did Paul call himself a a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious? Because that's what he did. Boy, he he injured every Christian man, every woman he could, every family before. But notice he did it ignorantly in unbelief. And that's what it says at the rest of the verse here. They did it ignorantly. You know, Paul, I think he just loved God so much and Christianity was so new And he considered it so contrary to what he had been taught in Judaism that he persecuted it. He didn't understand it. It was so new. He thought he was probably doing God a favor. These people are, you know, they're not following your law, God. And he probably, in his his zealousness, persecuted them. He says, I did it ignorantly and unbelief. I didn't know I was injuring anyone. And God put up with that. I'm sure glad God puts up with that sometimes, don't you? Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. I like that word exceeding. The grace that God showed him. But let's go on. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We believe in a universal gospel. All right? 
Notice that. This is a faithful saying. Now notice. And worthy of all acceptation. Everybody should accept this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We believe the gospel is for everybody. Everybody can be saved. It's universal. Christ Jesus. What did He come for? What was Christmas? What would we just do that Christmas thing for? Well, this verse tells us. He came into this world to save sinners. That's why He came. If you're not saved tonight, Jesus came into this world to save you from your sins. And then he says, of whom I am chief. Of whom I am chief. So, be careful of your testimony. But verse 13, you can use your testimony. You don't want to glorify your past sin. But you can use that to say, hey, get down on people's level. Say, hey, I used to be like this. But then the Lord saved me. He had mercy on me. It might give them hope. Because they might think you're some kind of goody-goody two-shoes. You know, that doesn't even need to go to the bathroom. But if you say to them, no, 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 I was like this before I was saved. Say, now I've watched Pastor Barron, Pastor Garland, Pastor Die. They grew up in Christian homes. I didn't. Man, alive. And so I share my testimony sometimes of the junk I was into when the Lord saved me. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. On the back of your notes there, under 15, uh, the godly sensitivity towards sin was associated in the apostle's mind with an equally vivid sense of the freeness and richness of divine grace. That Christ died not for the righteous, but for the guilty is the great thought that is on his mind. And he has no hesitancy in declaring it and in speaking most boldly concerning the exceedingly abundant grace of God in forgiving sin. The union of these two feelings in Paul is by no means an unusual occurrence amongst human minds. For you will generally find out that the people who are most clear in their witness that salvation is by grace are also the people of whom sin is exceeding sinful. Indeed, all those who prize grace most are those who also feel most sorrow concerning their transgressions. Oh, I'm trying to finish up. Verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern. To who? To them that should be hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. Did you believe on Christ after Paul? I did. He is a pattern. So we have two New Testament patterns. Jesus Christ the Lord, number one. But we also have Paul as a pattern to everybody that hereafter should believe. And so boy did the Lord put this guy through some things. Wow! As a pattern. As a pattern. I call him Paul the pattern. Paul the pattern. So study Christ, who he is, what he did, what he said. But study Paul also, who he is, what he did. And what he said. Both are patterns that can benefit us as we study his actions and his words. Now he, <clears throat> he just ends with a testimony now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a sermon there. Uh, the King is eternal. Amen. From everlasting to everlasting, the art God, no beginning, no end. He's eternal. And uh, then he is immortal. He's never going to die, never going to get sick, never going to slumber or sleep. Praise the Lord, that's our King. 
Amen. He's invisible. We'll see that again in chapter 6 and verse 16. You can't see Him. He is only pleased when we believe in Him by faith. To the only wise God, there's a lot of gods, but they're dummies. They are. They, they, the Bible says they can't speak, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't talk. You've got to carry them around to get them to go somewhere. To the only wise God. You and I have the only wise God. We don't have to be proud about that, but let's be thankful. Let's teach others you can know God. He's all wise. Oh boy, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies that went on before thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. So, so this is a charge to Timothy. Pastors get charges. Apparently there was prophecies. Maybe Paul one day said to Timothy, Timothy, I, I can see God's hand is upon you. I can see you're anointed of the Lord. And God's going to use you. War a good warfare. Pastors, Brother Pastor Barron, don't get involved in fights that are senseless and wasting of time. That they'll always come. There'll always be little brush fires in the church. There'll always be little brush fires. Always. Never ends. Always little feelings hurt, blah blah blah. That's not a good warfare. A good warfare is out there trying to win souls, trying to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, restraining evil, that, that type of a thing. Fight a might as war a good warfare. Holding faith in a conscience, we mentioned that back in verse five. You gotta have faith, gotta have a good conscience combined with your faith, which some having put away concerning their faith have made shipwreck of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander. They may have been pastors. They may have had faith. They may have had mountain-moving faith. But they put away a good conscience in, in, in their behavior. Like some pastor today might embezzle money or might become immoral with a woman in the church or, or, or something like that. They still have faith, but they put away a good conscience. They make shipwreck. And once a ship's wrecked, there's no putting it back together again. It's wrecked. It's right. I can give you examples there, but we got to... And whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And sometimes Satan is just the unwilling servant of God who does God's bidding and straightens out people. So that's chapter 1. I hope something along the way has helped uh, us tonight. But let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the pastoral epistles. We pray for Thy blessing on this study as we go forward into a transition here. We pray for Pastor Barron, Pastor Garland, Pastor Dye, that maybe some things tonight just sharpen us up a little. Maybe we just need to look at them again. We pray for the congregation to understand that uh, the warfare we're in, how we need their support, their love, their forgiveness sometimes, their mercy sometimes, and their trust because they have to follow our faith and as you unfold the vision through us they sometimes may wonder but Lord help us help help us all help Pastor Barron to be a good pastor and bless this study as we go forward and now Lord we dismiss and pray for thy blessing upon each and every one that has come tonight in Jesus name Amen